Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced and presented by women and gender diverse people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on unceded Kulin Nations land and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be advised that this program includes references to Indigenous people who have passed away. Please also be advised that today's show covers themes that may be distressing to some listeners, including racial violence and domestic and family violence. If you need to talk to someone about any of the issues covered in today's program, you can call Lifeline on 131114, that's 131114, or 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732 for support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners can also access a dedicated 24-7 national crisis support line by calling 13-YARN. That's 139276. In today's show, we're joined by Amy McGuire, a Durrambal and South Sea Islander woman and PhD candidate at the University of Queensland, as well as a freelance writer and journalist. Amy speaks with me about her research and writing on media representations of the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Australia. Through her work, she reframes Indigenous women as not missing, but disappeared, turning the focus back onto the settler colonial state and criminal punishment system to look at the myriad ways that Indigenous women are failed, and by whom, when it comes to experiences of violence. Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, thank you so much, Priya. Yeah, of course. Um, Maybe we can start off by hearing a bit about your research and how it feeds into these broader discussions around missing and murdered Indigenous women and, you know, the the real importance of investigating that further. Yeah, so I actually, um, I started my PhD, I think it was in 2018. And it was really around this idea. It began as this idea of what I thought was this silence around the ways Aboriginal women were able to speak on violence. And throughout my career, I was always very, um, I was always thinking about this issue because it, my career started in the wake of the anti-intervention and the moral panic that drove that, which was sparked by the media reporting. And as a consequence of that, I felt like Aboriginal women never had a safe space to speak on violence in the ways that we wanted to speak on it, in ways that wouldn't lead to these really horrific policy responses. Um, and was seized upon by like these racist shock jocks and everything like that. But really the whole of mainstream media were complicit in this. But I was also starting my research at a time when I was doing a story in my hometown of Rockhampton, which was around the wrongful conviction of an Aboriginal man named Kevin Henry. And the victim in that story was a strong, beautiful Aboriginal woman named Linda, which is what her family wanted to refer to her as. And one of the really, the ethical problems or dilemmas I had at the time was how we tell this story of violence without re-perpetrating violence against Linda because what had happened was that in the media she'd just become this body for which violence had been done to and also it had been replicated in the in the court reporting and also in the court transcripts or what went on at court and so it was just this central question about how do we tell stories of violence without re-perpetrating that violence Um, And that was the beginning. And it really changed over the years to actually be specifically looking at cases in which Aboriginal women had been forcibly disappeared. And that came actually quite late um, in the research because I started sitting in on inquests um, in Queensland into Aboriginal women who'd been disappeared. And so that 
pretty much changed everything because I knew there was a silence around this issue and we knew that it was a crisis because of what we know in Canada and the United States, but I just felt like there hadn't been that framework in which to speak to it as well. So that's where it sort of ended up and that's where I'm hoping to, like even after the PhD finishes, I continue to do that work and it's sort of just setting up that framework to be able to report on it without re-perpetrating violence. So coming back to that central question, like trying to find ways as black media that we don't redo that. Yeah, no, I think it is, um, you know, it's such an important area of research, but it's also just a really important, like it gets to so many of the moral and ethical questions that, you know, surround the establishment of, of this settler colony. And yeah, I was hoping that you could maybe take us through a bit of the background to this research and the kind of relationship between racialized and gendered violence in Australia and how that sort of feeds into these currents of of media misrepresentation or lack of representation of these issues. Yeah, so I mean, I think um, the the work a lot of Aboriginal women have been doing is actively contesting a lot of the lies that have been secured by representation about Aboriginal women. So part of the founding of the settler colony of Australia was founded on the active targeting of Aboriginal women as open for violation, as bodies for which violence could be done too, and also stereotypes which painted Aboriginal men as savage and as perpetrated by violence, um, which showed this community and this culture as depraved, which we know it's not. But that ultimately justified uh, the building of Australia, you know what I mean, and justified the theft of Aboriginal lands and the disappearances of Aboriginal men, women and children from lands. And representation had a really crucial role to play in that. And so one of the things I look at is like representation as violence, because those stereotypes from the frontier have never gone away. And we still see them operating in so many ways today and specifically in cases of Aboriginal women who've been disappeared. They're spoken of in very in certain ways that we can trace back to this continual stereotypes on the frontier. Like they're never innocent. I mean media continually reperpetrate these stereotypes. So I see like media as this sort of like complicit in the violence but also reproduces of the violence as well. Um, and they never sort of interrogate their role that they play you know, they're supposed to be objective, they're outside of it, but they're not. They're, they're actually involved in not only just through their coverage, but also their failure to acknowledge that these deaths and disappearances are happening. They're privileging of the words of like politicians or police or the courts over the words of the families. And just seeing Aboriginal women as fundamentally unworthy of love and unworthy of caring for um, and elevating the voices of white witnesses over black families and black witnesses. So there's so many ways that representation in the media have been violent, but those ways have been really like compounded over the generations. Yeah. And I think with the role of, or the role that media plays in a lot of people's lives is it provides access potentially into into kinds of conversations or spaces that they might not have access to in their daily lives. And if people are not actively uh, engaging with and having relationships with First Nations people, they are provided with this completely skewed and, um, you know, perverse representation in the media, which then allows this further level of dehumanization and abstraction. So I definitely understand what you mean about this sort of being like a self-referential thing. So you have mentioned disappearance a couple of times, and I, I thought it would be it would be good to talk about why you refer to Indigenous women and children as disappeared rather than missing, and why an emphasis on uh, disappearing rather than going missing is so important. 
Yeah, because this sort of really emerged from actually sitting in on inquests. So in Queensland, we've had three inquests in the past year, which is the first time I think it's happened in the whole state into the disappearances of Aboriginal women. And I can only really speak about one because two of the inquests are continuing, but it really emerged for me that we didn't have the language to describe it when I sat in on the inquest of Aboriginal women, Monique Club. And Monique Club went missing in 2013. I think it was uh, in a suburban park in Beanley. And there had just been no follow-up at all. Um, and so I sort of went to the inquest and there was all this talk, you know, like she was missing. She's a missing person. She was often described as MP. But missing or the word missing had this way of obscuring police accountability in her disappearance and their failure to find her. So what wasn't really fully interrogated in the coronial process, I felt, was the, I mean, they did touch on it, but just the complete apathy from Queensland Police and the Missing Persons Unit to find her and the way they obscured their complicity through these, like, false ideas of benevolence, like they were always searching for her. You know, they'll never tire until they find her, when in reality, a couple of months after she disappeared, they closed the investigation effectively. They, they began compiling the report to the coroner. And there was this one line that the missing persons unit officer said on the stand. He said, once the dust had settled, and it was just so casual. And I just remember writing it down and thinking, how had the dust settled? Like, she's still missing. And she had been missing two months afterwards. And because of the police failure to search further than the park, they really missed so many leads that would have, it was always focused on this park. Oh, she must be in the park. But Beanley is quite a busy centre. It's a suburban centre. And she went missing from the local shopping centre. And the last sight of her was a security guard who saw her walking off into the park. So it's a busy area and it's 2pm on a Saturday morning. And so her disappearance was described as like this mystery. She's still missing. And what really emerged from the inquest was that at no point had the consideration obscured by this idea of missing, there had been any consideration of the fact there was a perpetrator who may have been targeting her, that she would have left the park, that she might have died somewhere else. And so this term missing just did so many things and it just for me was the total wrong word to use because it really... um work towards absolution for not only the potential perpetrators in Monique's case, but also the police for their failure to find her or even to to search properly for her. And so that idea around missing is something that continued over the three inquests. It just kept coming out and even just cases I've heard of across the country, missing doesn't fully show what is actually happening. And that's because Monique and other Aboriginal women are specifically painted in a certain way. And often they're surveilled as criminals. Like that's how they're seen by the criminal justice system. They're not criminals. They've been criminalised and they're seen as unworthy of finding or searching. And the media silence is just overwhelming. Like I keep talking about Monique's case, but I was looking into the media reporting before she went missing The majority of the stories are about 28 stories, I think. It's not that number, but around 20-something stories about her. At least half of those was before she went missing, and it was all court reporting from her local newspaper. So she's been painted as this criminal when she's actually a criminalised person who needs help. But she was never seen that way. And even it was shown in the coronial report that the police failure to adequately search for her was because they believe she was intoxicated so they were also surveilling her as this drunk aboriginal woman which she wasn't she was deeply loved by her mother they were the one who was searching for her and trying to find her they were the one who went to the park you know and so there are just all of these layers of violence that explained 
what was happening in certain cases which were not reflected in this idea of missing, which is a police term, really. It's a police categorization, which we can't use. So I started to think about what does disappearance, you know, and the idea of disappearance because they were being disappeared not just physically but symbolically and through representation. And that just provided me with a different way of looking at it. And I really have to give props to Sharon Dev Singh, who's down in Nam, who works on a lot of these cases, who was also looking at it through the prism of enforceable disappearance and disappearance. And for me, that was just what it was. It was the active disappearing of Aboriginal women. And with disappearance, there's a silence because there's a not knowing. And so it's very characterised by not knowing. And that's another reason why we don't hear about it. Yeah, and it definitely feeds into this broader landscape of media reporting, uh, which uses such passive language around Aboriginal people, you know, experiencing uh, serious acts of violence where the the perpetrators are always, there's always a mystification or, you know, things are done to Aboriginal people, uh, but nobody has done anything wrong. Yes. And so, yeah, so it becomes this very... uh, this sort of sense of inevitability almost about violence with the way that it's represented in media. And I just want to pick up what you said. That's like very evident in the coronial process Um, and the media just responding to the coronial process as well. So like the violence is in the coronial process, but there's a lot of good scholarship over in Canada. Like Shireen Razak talks about, you know, the coronial process and it's predicated on the inevitability of Indigenous death. And as you bring Indigenous dysfunction into view, then that absolves the complicity and the accountability of the state. So they focus on addiction they focus on how aboriginal people are showing the signs of certain you know traumas and how they're being surveilled for it but they're using that in a certain way to bring it back to accountability on the aboriginal victims themselves and that's just all throughout the coronal process and it's just replicated in media reporting that inevitability of indigenous death and indigenous disappearance you're listening to women on the line on your local community radio station with me priya I've been speaking with Amy McGuire about her research into and writing on media representations of disappeared Indigenous women in Australia, and the importance of situating this within a systemic analysis of racial and gendered violence against Indigenous people. All women who are victims of violence, you know, they always talk about you have to be almost a perfect victim, but no one's a perfect victim, you know what I mean? But particularly Aboriginal women are never seen as innocent or victims. You know, what I've seen in the inquest processes or in trials in the past is that Aboriginal women are the ones who are put on trial or Aboriginal women are the the ones who are seen as, if we're talking about disappearance, like responsible for their own disappearance. And there's this idea that keeps coming up and it's very um, based in Australia is this idea of walkabout. They've gone walkabout. And I used to do a lot of stories and follow um, the Barable families very closely and those were three Aboriginal children who were murdered by a serial killer on Barrowville Mission back in 1990 to 91. And all of their families, for every child, the police had questioned them whether they'd gone walkabout. And one of the child children was like a three-year-old child, you know, Evelyn Greenup. And it's just unbelievable that even when they are so vulnerable to violence and so obviously vulnerable, they're still seen as responsible for their own deaths or their own disappearances. And that's a continual thing that keeps getting played out in the way Aboriginal people who have been victimised or vulnerable to violence are seen. But then there's a skewing of the perpetrator, particularly when they're white men. They are very much seen as innocent or they are given so much leniency or leeway to explain their version of events, even if 
their version of events is totally ludicrous. But there's always that appeal to innocence from white men particularly, and we have to look at that in the context of something that's a lot more sinister at play is that Australia is providing the conditions for impunity for these white men to continue to perpetrate violence against Aboriginal women and children, and that is actually what's happening, and I think that's what's lost. And it's also what's lost. This is why you see so much focus on from the mainstream media about family violence in communities. And I'm not denying it's an issue, but it really obscures what is happening across this country around this impunity given to white men to hurt black women and black children. Because one of the things that's also important to note is that a lot of the times when Aboriginal women have been disappeared, they're away from their communities. They're away from the places that where they felt safe. They were away from their community networks. They're often very disconnected at that point in time when they had disappeared. All of these cases could have been solved. All of the women could have been found. It's it's just but the inefficiency and the complete apathy of the original investigation totally ruined the process. And yet it's they never hold accountable for that. You know, I mean, and just look the lengths that the police go to to obscure the accountability of these white men and to fail to see them as perpetrators is unbelievable. Like it's just like you wouldn't believe it's happening until you like sit there and witness it, you know? Yeah. And I mean, even the police themselves, you know, using all of these racist and pejorative descriptions to justify their own inaction. And, you know, we've seen in so many cases, tragically, that, you know, women have made calls to the police, have appealed to the police for help before something had happened, um, or had, you know, become known to the police for some reason because they had needed help. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, this lack of belief in the in the humanity and inherent worth yeah. of Aboriginal women really, you know, keeps coming through again and again. I thought we could also turn to considering a bit more of the journalistic side of the issues we've been discussing and particularly the way that newsworthiness is constructed. And it's clear that there are a couple of dominant modes in mainstream media in representing violence experienced by Indigenous people. And this is most notably this active silencing. Um, but I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to this in the sort of way that and I'm and I'm thinking across the across the board from conservative to quote unquote progressive media outlets um, perpetrate these kinds of silences or misrepresentations. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key issue is that a lot of the deaths and disappearances are just not seen as newsworthy stories. And I'll just give, like, an example of when I started to think of, like, newsworthiness is when Miss Clark died in Geraldton, and I wrote this piece on Substack, um, and it was awake in the wake of Black Lives Matter. So George Floyd had just been murdered, and there was all of this outrage even in Australia. So I'd written a piece on Substack because the officer who had killed Miss Clark in Geraldton had just been charged with murder. And I just like contrast, you know, that those level of outrage. And I also critiqued sort of the local media reporting at the time because they were largely just re-perpetrating this idea as Miss Clark as, as this threat and this criminal. And as I say criminal, I said, no, she was criminalized based on like her history told by the justice system. And I remember being approached by a, like a local journalist up in the WA and she felt that was like very harsh for me to critique that because they were trying to do their best. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, by the standards of good journalism, you were doing what you were trained to do. So we got to, if that's the problem, then we have to start looking at what is good journalism. And maybe we have to start looking at different ways we evaluate what journalism is and how journalism should be done. And so I started looking at things like what would a black newsworthiness look like? And the only way we can actually have 
a black newsworthiness and develop our own black news followers is through independent black media. Like it can't happen anywhere else because even progressive media outlets are still re-perpetrating this idea because it's all founded on these mainstream news values. And those are based on, not on our tellings, you know what I mean? But it's based on a specific type of telling told by the white mainstream who are all complicit in these processes of settler colonialism. So one of the things I was really looking at in my PhD was I was looking at when I, um, the case of Letitia Nolan and Christy Scholes. And for listeners who might not know, I was following that story early on in my journalism career because they were two Aboriginal mothers who had both been killed by an Aboriginal man named Malcolm Naden. And he went on the run for six or seven years um, into the bush. And their deaths and Letitia's disappearance was not considered a newsworthy story at all until Malcolm Naden went on the run and then when Malcolm Naden shot a cop. And I did sort of like a media analysis of like the levels of coverage after Malcolm Naden shot the cop just went like that. And it was really interesting because the Aboriginality of the victims was never made visible because when they were talked about, they were trying to obviously make them palatable to white people to grieve. So I found that very interesting how the women were seen as like they're trying to make them palatable, so there was no mention of their Aboriginality. But Malcolm Naden, there was this very visibility of his um, Aboriginality, but it was also in line, always in line with these mystical attributes associated to like the noble savage, and also akin with the bush ranger. So he was out um, in Barrington Tops like Captain Thunderbolt, and there was this real like insatiable appetite for this bush ranger story, and his Aboriginality was sanitized through that. So I started to look at that newsworthy concept, what sort of tenets of a black newsworthiness would look like when Letitia, what goes missing, how do we report on that? And that, you know, like the love that her family had for her, the fear they had for her, the fact they searched, all of those are tenets of newsworthiness to me, but they were not seen as newsworthy to the local media at the time. So building a separate idea, like I just feel like we should toss out a lot of those news values and just start building our own because we're at a time of crisis in this world. Like it's not even just in our own country, like a climate crisis where the standards of mainstream media are not fitting up to what the crisis is actually telling us. You know, these ideas of objectivity and all this other rubbish. It's just not. Like there needs to be some sort of insurgent media, some independent black media. Anyway, I'm like just ranting, but the, the whole fundamental idea of journalism needs to be changed and news values because they value certain lives over the lives of others. You know what I mean? So the thing we need to do is just chuck out those news values and build our own. It is really, yeah, it, it's it's a completely different frame of reference that that is required. So I guess I was also wondering if you wanted to expand on ethical witnessing and this this broader transformation of journalistic practice through processes of of black witnessing and narration. I mean, it's something that's continually evolving, but I started to think of, like I, I mentioned before about how Aboriginal women are never seen as sort of human. They're always dehumanised. And like the what people think is that you have to humanise, like that's the response to dehumanisation. But humanising, like if you think of the history of like who is human and who is not, when you humanise someone, it's always to make them closer to whiteness. So you'll see that often like motherhood is played out but a certain way because they're, you know, like sometimes motherhood is not, like you think of the case of Lynette Daly where her motherhood was used against her. Um, to further dehumanize her, but humanizing as a strategy doesn't actually work for us because it's always about making you more grievable without actually dismantling what makes a grievable body, what makes a grievable life, to quote like Judith Butler. 
So I started to look at this thing called presencing, which is a concept sort of I built upon from Leanne Bittasamoki Simpson, who's an, a Canadian Aboriginal woman. And she sort of speaks about presencing as very much tied to your own conceptions of nationhood. So I started building on it and presencing for me began as this idea of um, presencing the women in lives, but presencing particularly their resistances to violence, because often when you resist violence, that resistance is seen as violent, you know, but there are so many ways Aboriginal women resist violence that is miss, like they're criminalised for those resistances a lot of the time. But then I realised when I was sitting in the courtrooms is that presencing is also about not centering yourself, but positioning yourself to a story, bearing witness to that story, but bearing witness in ways that you're not disconnected, but you're telling it through relationality and care and reciprocity. So you're not just extracting that story. You're not just saying I have, you know, this is my story. This is my exclusive. I'm the, I'm the first journalist. There. It's nothing about that. It's about giving you a responsibility to tell that story through your positioning. And the importance of that in the coronal process is that when I've sat there, there are all of these layers of violence that aren't visible until you feel it. And you have to be there to feel it. And I felt that in so many, so many times you sit there and you just, you know, and seeing the impact of it on the blackfellas who are sitting behind you or in front of you, and then seeing the journalists on the side who are just there, you know, reporting on what's being said. So, like, witnessing is very much you feeling that violence as well. And when you feel it, you're able to show it in a certain way. But this is something that's, like, continuing and each time, every story has changed the way I think about certain things. And so it's also about you being transformed by that story and your thinking around that story. Because I would never be able to see what's happening now unless I went through that process of transformation. And it's changed me in every single different way. And that's a part of witnessing. That's a part of black witnessing. And that's a part of presencing. Um, yeah. And you just, you have to be there and you have to be there for families and for the women specifically like that's who you were there for above anything else that's all we've got time for today on women on the line in today's show i was joined by darumball and south sea islander researcher freelance writer and journalist amy mcguire to unpack the physical and symbolic disappearance of indigenous women in australia Again, if you need to speak with someone about any of the issues covered in today's program, you can call Lifeline on 131114, that's 131114, or 1-800-RESPECT, that's 1-800-737-732 for support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners can also access a dedicated 24-7 national crisis support line on 13YARN. That's 139276. During our conversation, Amy referred to presencing as a methodology for ethical witnessing and journalism. This approach is echoed in the ethos and name of Amy's Substack Presence, which you can find at amymaguire.substack.com. Please consider a paid subscription if you're able to support independent black media. Women on the Line is produced and presented by women and gender diverse people in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on unceded Kulin Nations land. Women on the Line is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network, and this is made possible with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Our theme music is by Ripley Kavara, and past programs can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. 
I'm Priya Kunjan, and tune in to Women on the Line next week on your local community radio station. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.